Next Experts Audio Corner. This is Dr. Amy Hoffnagel from the University of Florida in Jacksonville, and today I will be speaking with Dr. Dinesh Gupta from Duke University. Dr. Gupta is a professor of anesthesiology and is the chief of neuroanesthesia, otolaryngology, and offsite anesthesia at Duke. Dr. Gupta completed his anesthesia and neuroanesthesia training at the University of California at San Francisco. He has served as chief of neuroanesthesia at the University of Utah and as director for neuroanesthesia research at Northwestern University prior to his appointment at Duke. He currently serves on the board of directors for SNAC and has published extensively on the topic of clinical pharmacology and neuroanesthesia. He is here today to discuss opioid pharmacology in the neurosurgical patient. On behalf of the Snack Education Committee, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, the first thing I need to ask is if you have any relevant disclosures related to this topic. Uh, I do not. Unfortunately, I'm not funded to do any opioid-related research by any companies. All right. So just to start out with, is there such a thing as the best opioid? If you ask my fellows in the past, I would say Remy Fentanyl is a perfect opioid because you can titrate it to everything you need. But I think it fails that test of being the best because it doesn't provide any analgesia afterwards. So in the end, I don't think there's any best to opioid. It's learning to use the opioids for what they're good for and taking advantage of their pharmacokinetics. So when you look at the literature and start discussing synergistic effects between hypnotics and analgesics, response surface models are frequently talked about. Can you explain what the response surface model is? The response surface model is a 3D graph that has on one axis the opioid concentration, on the second axis the hypnotic concentration, and on the third axis the clinical effect that you're measuring. Often we do this for sedation score, we've done it for BIS, we'll do it for analgesia, for experimental um, stimuli such as electrical tetanus or pressure algometry. And most response services are made by taking volunteers and giving them different combinations of opioids and hypnotics to achieve a pseudo-steady state and measuring the response. And then with that, you can map out how the interaction is between drug A and drug B, in this case, the opioid and hypnotic. The response services, if there's just simple additive between two drugs, say you were looking at propofol and a volatile anesthetic, then you would find that the response surface would show a very flat surface without any bowing in of, of drug A plus drug B in combination. If there was antagonism, you would see that adding one drug to the other would cause less of an effect and it would bow out or balloon up like a parachute. And for synergy, what it looks like in the 3D graph is opioids and hypnotics actually have a big kind of tidal basin, a kind of bowl it forms in the area of interaction so that as you add some opioid to hypnotics, you get a profound effect in ventilation or in, in sedation or in analgesia. And vice versa, if you add some hypnotic to opioid, you get a profound effect also. And it represents to us what we see clinically. You see that people who get midazolam and perfectly fine, maybe slightly sedated with good ventilation, get a modicum of opioid and all of a sudden they're apneic unless they're stimulated. And that's an example of the synergy we see clinically every day, but you can't capture with a one-dimensional or two-dimensional graph of a response 
using this and going forward from some of the research you've done where you've looked at the responses between sevoflurane and remifentanil, uh, what have you come to realize in the clinical realm that's changed your practice on a daily basis? So I think the most impressive thing when you start looking at response surfaces, or more importantly, just how our drugs interact with each other, is that you can do any combination of a hypnotic and analgesic that will provide the same clinical state. So you can do a full 1.3, 1.5 mac of vapor and provide the same anesthetic clinically as far as patient's response hemodynamically or by movement that you could with 0.5 mac of sevoflurane and say 0.15 mics per kilo per minute of remifentanil. And those achieve the same clinical state, but they have very different recovery characteristics, very different hemodynamic characteristics when you're not being stimulated, and very different recovery as far as analgesic needs after surgery. And so I think it's changed my practice because it's taught me to think about why I would just dial up my sevoflurane or crank up my propofol, and instead I take advantage of the synergy and add layers of opioid to my anesthetics and tend to balance more towards the middle of the road or even opioid-heavy anesthetic for my anesthetic care. So earlier you mentioned that remifentanil was your preferred analgesic or your preferred opioid. However, it lacks analgesic properties in the post-op period. How do you combat that in daily practice? So in the ideal world, I would be a having a regional anesthetic of some sort, whether it's nerve blocks or peripheral nerve catheters or epidurals or spinals or what have you, and then I wouldn't need any postoperative opioid, and then I would avoid all those side effects. Barring the ability to use local anesthetics as a regional anesthetic post-op, then what I tend to do is combine remifentanil with I tend to use methadone or dilaudid, hydromorphone, and that's because they have long-acting properties, and so I can often load patients up front with either methadone or hydromorphone, use the remifentanil throughout the case for the hemodynamic perturbations that are from nociceptive input that is not taken care of by the long-acting opioid and the hypnotic I've been administering, and then at the end of surgery, choose to add additional long-acting opioid if needed. And it provides me the best of both worlds, a long-acting opioid plus remifentanil allows me to get a combination that provides analgesia post-op, but is also titratable for all the pokes and all the lack of pokes that happen in the surgery that means you want to go up and down your opioid. How are you monitoring the depth of your anesthetic when you're using an opioid-heavy technique? So, uh, unfortunately, we don't have any good analgesic monitors, and I use hemodynamics as my surrogate for adequate opioids. That is when you have a nociceptive input that isn't being blocked by your opioids, then you're going to get an increase in heart rate and blood pressure. I do use process EG, and often at institutions I've been at, it's been the BIS monitor. But any of the process EGs, along with um, hemodynamics, are how I choose to balance my anesthetic. And I'll use the process EG to give enough hypnotic that I'm running a low to moderate hypnotic dose, and then I use the hemodynamics to help me titrate when I need to increase or possibly decrease my remifentanil infusion if that's what I'm using. If I'm using longer-acting opioids and bolus and infusion, then I use the hemodynamics to tell me when I need to increase my opioids 
uh, my opioid dose with a bolus and infusion. Other questions you want to explore? Well, I think um, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves when we're choosing anesthetics for intracranial surgery first is why do we want to use the hypnotic we're using versus why do we want to use the analgesic, whether it's an opioid, dexmedetomidine, lidocaine, what have you. And going to the hypnotic first, the classic, I think, in the United States in particular is using volatile anesthetic for your intracranial surgery. And we tend to hear and teach, oh, give 0.5.6 MAC and you're okay. And that's true as far as the cerebral blood volume and blood flow if you hyperventilate the patients. In Europe, you see a lot more people using propofol as their hypnotic of choice because they deal with the target control and infusions that they have more control over it. But either way, I think in intracranial surgery, we tend to be hypnotic low and a higher amount of opioid because we tend to use remifentanil, which is not only predictable in its decay so we can have predictable wake-ups, but also titratable for the nociceptive needs in the operating room. The thing that always throws my residents a curveball is when they see me doing a case for intracranial surgery, when I decide to do high doses of propofol for their intracranial portion and very low doses of my opioid. And that's mainly because you could take advantage of propofol causing cerebral metabolic suppression, and the cerebral metabolic rate is still coupled with the cerebral blood flow, and so you can actually decrease the brain bulk and make the skull-based surgeon at least happy with less retraction on the brain. And that's a, a curveball that the younger residents like, wow, never thought about that because I, I guess I um, spent a lot of time with high opioid concentrations and they think that's the only way I do anesthesia. Yeah, so for spine surgery, I think it's a different issue. I think we have a lot of um, people who are still so comfortable with, with hypnotic heavy techniques that we tend to, especially in institutions where they use propofol because of transcranial motor evoked potentials for spine surgery, they tend to use higher doses of propofol and lower doses of opioid because they're afraid, oh, we're not going to get the patient to wake up at the end if we give them too much opioid. And I think that one of the things that response services have taught me and just time taking care of these spine patients is that they need a fair bit of opioid after surgery. And so we often do them a disservice by going high on our, on our hypnotic because then by going low on our opioid, we cheat. Um, we still get to wake them up fast, but then they have insufficient analgesia post-op. And so one of the things I recommend a lot of times is to take what you learn from intracranial surgery about hypnotics and from laparoscopic cholecystectomies and other non-intracranial surgery and apply that to doing total intravenous anesthesia if that's what you're going to do for your spine surgery. That is, don't go high on your hypnotic because it actually accumulates over time and go higher on the opioid, which a patient's going to need after surgery. Spine surgery also gets a little more interesting, though, because we have the interactions with the drugs that have an analgesic effect at three months. That is ketamine, lidocaine, um, those drugs have a lot of um, benefit in spine surgery, at least in the randomized controlled trials, and yet they confound our ability to, to provide really titratable anesthetics and then at the same time wake up very quickly. I wish we had response services for those, but I'm not sure how to do four- and five-dimensional graphs 
um, on Excel or in Sigma plot, let alone in my head. Yeah, I can't even fathom how that would work out, but it's certainly an interesting thought. Do you want to talk at all about like hemodynamic management and pressors given a heavy, heavy hypnotic technique, or is that a little it's a little off topic? So one of the interesting observations that process EEG helped us figure out over the last 15 years or more is that volatile anesthetics cause a lot more hemodynamic perturbations than propofol does. And people first look at you when you say that and say, there's no way because propofol, we all think of as a profound arteriodilator. But anybody who's tried bolusing propofol for Mayfield pin fixation or sudden hypertension in the operating room realize that propofol is not the best antihypertensive we have. It works when your depth of anesthesia is inadequate, but when you're getting stimulated, propofol may not even cause hypotension. It may not even cause anything but the depth of anesthesia to increase. And the reason I think it's interesting is because when people turn on their volatile anesthetic and they're going up and down on the vaporizer and they are achieving at least half a MAC, they find that they have a significant amount of hypotension because of arteriodilation and at least film phenylephrine will take care of it, usually 30, 40 mics per kilo, uh, 30, 40 mics per minute. The interesting thing about propofol is that you can run propofol to, in this case, a bis of 40 to 50 and not have that much hemodynamic depression, and it makes it an easier way to balance your anesthetic. And even if you're doing a regional anesthetic with the sympathectomy, we tend to see that propofol causes less hypotension than volatile anesthetics, and that seems counterintuitive to the younger clinicians because they don't get so familiar with it and are biased to think that propofol is an arteriodilator and always causes hypotension because we bolus it up front and get hypotension with induction. And so I think that's um, one of the observations I think that as you do a balanced anesthetic, you find. I think the other thing that people forget is that balanced anesthesia means choosing your anesthetic for what you want to do at that time and also post-op. And we often forget that we can influence post-operative analgesia beyond the first hour. And for craniotomies, I know we love to use remifentanil and wake them up and get a crisp neurologic exam. But I've been really um, fascinated by the people who are using dexmedetomidine or lidocaine in place of remifentanil for their craniotomies because they do a low dose of volatile anesthetic or propofol along with dexmedetomidine or lidocaine infusions and they find that they get a slightly slower wake-up from their surgery, but they also get a profound analgesic effect in the first 24 hours as measured by decreased pain scores and decreased opioid consumption compared to the fentanyl groups. And so I've been starting to play with those and wonder, should we be adding those as another layer to our balanced anesthetic? The other interesting thing that is probably a myth of anesthesia for pharmacology that we should probably talk about is fentanyl versus sufentanyl. In spine surgery, it's amazing to see how many people have fallen in love with sufentanyl. Almost every institution that does big deformity surgery has a group of people who say sufentanyl is a beautiful, beautiful opioid and prefer that to fentanyl. And when you look at context-sensitive half-times and context-sensitive decrement times, and you say, if I ran an infusion and kept the effect site concentration constant for the whole time of the surgery, 
when I turn off the infusion, the context sense to half time tells me that fentanyl is a lot worse than sufentanyl, meaning it's accumulated. And if I was off to the races and ran the same equal analgesic effects of fentanyl and sufentanyl for four, six, eight, ten hours, and I turn off my infusion at the same time, then I actually have sufentanyl win in the wake up because it's got a faster decay. But what we don't remember is that clinically, nobody does that. Nobody runs a constant infusion of those opioids. In fact, the Mayo Clinic did a really nice retrospective study in the past year or two that showed that when you look at time to wake up from fentanyl or sufentanyl, balanced anesthetics or spine surgery, by people who titrated their fentanyl or sufentanyl because they're used to using that drug, there's no difference in the time to um, extubation for those patients that got sufentanyl or fentanyl. And it just proves that we as clinicians can use any of these drugs and achieve what we want. That's why when we say what's the best opioid, it's the opioid that you can titrate to get the responses you want. I guess the best opioid to me would be remifentanyl and methadone and something to counteract ventilatory depression and then one of the ampokine stimulants and then I would have the best of all worlds. I'd have long-acting analgesic so patients are comfortable. I'd remifentanil in the operating room so patients don't have any nociceptive-induced movement or hemodynamic perturbations, and I could do what I wanted. But I think any combination you're good at is really what we should be targeting because opioids are flavors of chocolate chips in some sense. Well, as a previous believer in sufentanil, I will tell you that you have potentially inspired me to try out Remy with a with adding a little bit of methadone. Well, I think Glenn Murphy did a great study that just came out of anesthesiology. I laughed because um, of the discussions, but I'll tell you that in a second. But he did a methadone, I believe it's a randomized controlled trial of methadone and placebo, 0.2 milligrams per kilo um, for two-level and one-level spine fusion. I want to say you Sufenta or Remy, I can't remember which, but regardless, what he found was methadone patients were more comfortable. The technique we were using downtown in at Northwestern in Chicago, and I say downtown from Evanston Hospital, North Shore, where Glenn is. Glenn's a good friend of mine, so I guess that should be a disclosure. But we were using methadone about 0.3 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo for these three to six hour fine fusions, whether they had inner body or not, and they were one to three levels. And we used remifentanil as, I would say, our suspenders. Of I, The belt was the methadone and the suspenders were the remifentanil. So we would give the methadone up front with induction, run the remifentanil if needed during the case, and then at the end of surgery decide if we needed to give more methadone or Dilaudid based off of the hemodynamics and how much remifentanil we were running. And the reason I laughed is that in Glenn's um, article, he does mention that over time, their group has now uh, migrated to about 0.3 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo of methadone. And so we're all kind of finding for that one to two level fusion, if you load them with 0.3, maybe 0.4 milligrams per kilo of methadone. And these are people taking Norcos or Percocets, not high doses of fentanyl and Oxycontin and things like that. You can actually do spine surgery with minimal other opioid. I will say for a trick, if you're going to use remifentanil for your deformity surgery, your thoracolumbar surgery, load them with methadone up front, 
run them on Remy fentanyl. And then throughout the case, if you get above 0.15 to 0.2 milligrams uh, or mics per kilo per minute of um, Remy fentanyl, go ahead and add another dose of whatever long-acting opioid you want, hydromorphone or methadone. Often I'll do five or 10 milligrams at a time of methadone. And see if you can come down on that opioid. And in a sense, use the Remy fentanyl as a sensor that your methadone or your methadone hydromorphone combination is subtherapeutic for the nociception the patient's feeling. And that can give you a guide on when you're giving more opioid for these patients. And that should help you avoid underdosing your patients when you're giving Remy fentanyl in the operating room. It makes perfect sense. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. This has been a fascinating and eye-opening discussion. It's great talking to you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out past and future episodes of Snacks Experts Audio Class.